Well, the title of this lecture is actually on Christian apologetics. And I want to talk in the first part of what I'm going to say about what it means. And to deal with the whole issue of faith and reason and conversion. And the various views that Christians have on apologetics. In the second half, I want to look at some very specific methods. And I think some methods that the Bible actually uh, endorses. Now, apologetics certainly doesn't mean apologizing and saying sorry for being a Christian. Uh, The word uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, and that word is used eight times in the New Testament. One of the best passages is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's in 1 Peter 3.15. Now, to give an answer is the English translation of the Greek word apologia. And in other places, the word is used in a different way. In Acts 25, verse 16, Paul uses the word to speak of his right to a defense under Roman law. So the defense counsel would be, in this case, Paul who had a right to speak in his own defense. And he used that same word, apologia. But 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. And there's a very great need today for Christians to give such a defense. Let me quote from Richard Dawkins, who's Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University and one of the leading anti-religious figures of our age. He says that faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. Faith is belief in, spite of, or perhaps even because of, the lack of evidence. That's Richard Dawkins. And people like that are saying such comments on our television screens and radio every day of the week. I believe it honours God, honours God, when we can give an answer to that sort of statement. Let me give you two definitions of apologetics. The first by Wayne Grudem. Apologetics is the defense of the truthfulness of the Christian faith for the purpose of convincing unbelievers. That's Wayne Grudem. Here's another definition, this one from Colin Brown. Apologetics is the working out and the presentation of the intellectual, scientific, and philosophical arguments which underlie a defense of the Christian faith. Now, there are many types of arguments that we can use, and the goal always is to help people to see that God exists, that the Bible is the word of God, and that Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. So when non-Christians have questions we should try and answer their questions. And to do this, we only need to use, usually, a few arguments. They may not even be the cleverest ones, but they should be the ones uh, that give an answer to the question that people ask. Now, in what you may say, you may not convince the person. You may only help them a little. Of course, we seek to convince uh, people who are not Christians. But if all we do is to seek to help an unbeliever think a little bit about the Christian faith, then we've actually helped that person. And the question that always arises 
when people think about apologetics is, can you argue someone to faith? There are many questions that people have. Someone may wonder about suffering. Another may say, well, hasn't science explained away the need for God? There are all sorts of questions that people have. And if if you could just answer those questions and convert people by arguing, then the faith wouldn't be very secure at all, would it? Because uh, it would only be as secure until the next person came along and had a better argument, uh, and then the person would reject their faith when they met somebody who was better at arguing. Now, you can't actually uh, convince someone to become a Christian by argument alone. And I think that most Christians know this. They know that you can't argue someone to faith. But it's important to see why this is in fact the case. And in order to look at that, I want to look at what faith means. What is faith? Well, I believe biblically it involves two things. First of of all, it does involve belief. Let me quote from Hebrews 11, two verses. The first verse. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, verse 1. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith clearly does include believing and acknowledging that the gospel is really true. But intellectual agreement is not enough to have real faith. James says that even the demons know that there is a God and they shudder as a result. There is intellectual ascent, if you like, on the part of the demons, but no faith. There must be something more. There must be a personal trust in Jesus Christ's ability to save. And that's the second part of faith. First of all, there's belief. And second, there's personal trust. It's not just accepting that certain things are true, but trusting a person, trusting Jesus Christ. The Bible talks of receiving Christ and believing in his name, John 1 verse 12. There must be a personal trust in Christ as well as an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. And Jesus, when he uh, talked about faith, told a story of the mustard seed. He said that the important thing really was not the amount of faith, it was the object of faith. The faith might be only as small as a mustard seed. But Jesus said, such a faith is enough to move mountains in Matthew 17. As we go on in the Christian life, our faith will grow. But faith is both belief and trust. You cannot decouple belief from personal trust in Christ. And neither can you decouple faith from repentance. If you do not want repentance, then you do not want to be saved unless you are prepared to forsake sin. We have to repent. Repentance and faith occur at the same time. And in scripture, both terms often occur together. Paul said, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Acts 20 verse 21. Jesus himself said, He came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32 He said we are to preach repentance and forgiveness in his name. Luke 24.47 
There's an interesting story in John chapter 8 where John records that Jesus talked to a group of Jews who believed in him. So before the story uh, gets underway, it says that Jesus was talking to the Jews who had believed in him. Perhaps they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus went on to test their faith. He told them that they must obey his teaching. Only then would they know the truth, and only then would they be set free. The Jews were so outraged by what Jesus said that in their hearts they wanted to kill him. These Jews had some belief in Jesus, apparently, but they were not prepared to surrender their hearts to him. Jesus taught that repentance must accompany real faith. And there are many examples uh, in the Bible where that wasn't true. Just think of the rich young ruler who came to Christ who believed in him, but he wouldn't repent because of his love of money. And in the Lord's Prayer and in the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus talks of the impossibility that God will forgive our sins against him if we refuse to give, forgive those who sin against us. If we cannot forgive others, it shows that we have not really repented ourselves. So we turn to Christ for salvation, and we turn to Christ from our sins, and we turn away from the sins and towards Christ to ask us to, uh, to save us. As we go on in the Christian life, our faith grows and our repentance grows. The more we know Christ, the more our faith grows and the more we want to be like him and to be holy. So can you argue someone to faith? No, you can't. Faith and repentance come about by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke of our need to be born again. He said that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. John 3.6. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, strictly speaking, we are not justified by faith. It's not faith that saves you. It's not faith that earns you merit with God. It's grace given in Christ. Faith is the means or the vehicle which God uses. We are saved by grace through faith. So that's uh, something then of the relationship between uh, conversion and uh, arguments. Now, many Christians have looked at these issues uh, and I think they've fallen into three extremes. I want to look at these three extremes before we get to what is the mainstream view, which I certainly hold. And what you believe about apologetics largely depends on what you believe about the mind. And what do, you, what do you believe about the role of the mind? And I want to consider three extremes, one after the other. And the first one is fideism, which is about bypassing the mind. John Stott says this, So much modern evangelism is an assault on the emotions and the will without any comparable recognition on the mind. But our evangelistic appeal should never ask people to close or suspend their minds. 
And that's exactly what some Christians have done in the past. Because Christianity through the ages has had to endure uh, attacks from sceptical philosophers, fideists back in the 16th century broke the link between faith and reason. Truth in religion, they said, rests on faith. Reason, reason is irrelevant. Neither, they said, can you have any knowledge of God through creation. Fideists believe that all you have to do is say to somebody, just believe. Faith must not be justified by arguments, arguments about truth. And such people still exist today. And let me quote R.C. Sproul, um, who really explains the motivation behind uh, these fideists. The desire for safety to free religion from philosophical attack by removing it from the range of critics' guns. If religion is relegated exclusively to the realm of faith, then it can live safely in its isolated environment. That's really what they were about. There were huge attacks on Christianity from the Enlightenment and before even. And in fact, Norman uh, Geisler, who's an American theologian, believes that fideism uh, started in around about the 3rd century AD. But as there have been attacks on the Christian faith, some people have retreated to say, well, really, faith isn't about reason at all. It's about believing, just believing. So that's the first extreme. And, of course, fideists are right to say that one's commitment to God is not based on reason or evidence. But, of course, faith is consistent with reason. You can't argue someone to faith, but nevertheless, faith is consistent with reason. God has made a logical universe. Logic is dependent on God, not God on logic. And, of course, you only have to ask a fideist whether he believes his fideism is true to sink the whole belief system. It's a bit like how do you sink an Irish submarine? You knock on the door, uh, and then the submarine sinks. It's the same thing. If you ask a fideism, uh, does he believe that his belief is true? If he says yes, then you tell him politely he's just defended his belief and he can't be a fideist. If he says no, then you tell him he shouldn't be a fideist in the first place. It's not true. So fideism is Christianity drained of its truth claims. Let me quote Gresham Machen, who's a very great doughty defender of the Christian faith. He was an American theologian who fought against liberalism. Uh, he lived from 1881 to 1937. And he says, certainly a Christianity that avoids argument is not the Christianity of the New Testament. When people become Christians, it's a rational process. In fact, so rational that people believe they did it. It so squares with their mind and with their thinking that they're perfectly convinced that they pull the whole thing off themselves. But God works using our mind. Now, hopefully, if we've been Christians for a little while, we'll begin to see how God actually worked and not us. But God doesn't zap us. Lightning is not the method that God uses to convert people to the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit makes us, as Calvin said, acquiesce in the evidence. And a very famous apologist, Benjamin Warfield, an American again, said, the action of the Holy Spirit in giving faith is not apart from the evidence, but along with the evidence, and in the first instance, consists in preparing the soul for the reception of the evidence. 
So that's the first extreme that people fall into. They say the mind really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of belief. Just believe. The second uh, error is, is one that's a very hot topic at the moment in America. And it's maybe something you've never heard of, but um, many theologians are arguing about it at the moment from the reformed uh, theological uh, spectrum and the theological spectrum. It's a radical approach to apologetics. Uh, it rejects, really, much of the traditional understanding, um, which is consistent with people like John Calvin. It has a very bleak view of the human mind. It asserts that the, uh, the human mind is fallen, yes, but incapable of true rationality. And this belief um, is espoused by many godly reformed people, many people that I admire and many people who are certainly very godly people. And it's called presuppositional apologetics. And its founder is often held to be Cornelius Van Til, who lived from 1895 to 1987. But in fact, it went back a lot further than that to Abraham Kuyper, who lived from 1837 to 1920. Now, both of these men were, in fact, Dutch. Kuyper uh, was, in fact, Prime Minister even of Holland at one time. And he was a very, very important figure. Uh, he taught that the Christian faith is true for all of life. A revolutionary view in many ways because the, the church had retreated into um, believing that, well, the Christian faith is only true for devotional bits. It's only true on the doctrine of salvation. It doesn't say anything about the whole of life. Kuiper said no. He revived Calvin's teaching uh, that there was saving grace and common grace. God uh, provides even for those who are not believers. Not salvation, but God in his mercy restrains evil uh, through the conscience and through governing authorities and provides food, the seasons, intellectual and creative gifts to all men. So Kuiper was a very important figure, and he said much that was very, very important and very good. These are important truths. But Kuiper also asserted that apologetics were a waste of time. His argument was this. How can someone who doesn't share the Christian worldview accept evidences which are part of that worldview? Get the person to see that their worldview is wrong first. Then you can introduce evidences, he says. Now, by his own admission, Van Til, who, who left Holland and went to America, uh, he was very strongly influenced by Kuiper. Van Til argues that all facts involve interpretation. Instead of appealing to facts and evidence on common ground with a non-Christian, Van Til says you must first challenge the unbeliever, about where he gets his facts from. You must show that without the Christian faith being true, it's impossible to believe anything at all. It's impossible to prove anything at all. Van Til argued that there is a basic difference between people who begin with Christian presuppositions and those who do not. And because of this, so the argument runs, evidences for Christianity will be rejected out of hand by those who don't share the Christian presuppositions. Now, much of what Van Til believed is absolutely spot on, absolutely true. But the problem is the approach, really. In presuppositional apologetics, you approach the unbeliever and you assume that Christianity is true 
and you show the inadequacy of every other sort of belief system. Now, Van Til also said that non-Christians can't see uh, God in creation. They cannot see the truth of Psalm 19. There's no such thing as general revelation. Only after someone becomes a believer can they see God in nature. Only after the non-Christian becomes a Christian do apologetics have a place. Let me first uh, say again uh, that uh, much of what Van Til says is absolutely correct. Without the Christian faith being true, it would be impossible to prove anything. There's much in what Van Til says that has been a very powerful influence for good, particularly, I would say, in the area of common grace and the importance of the Christian worldview. And one of the greatest influences Cornelius Van Til has been is on his student, Francis Schaeffer. In his life, Schaeffer certainly talked a great deal about people's presuppositions. Where are you coming from? That's what he talked about. But that doesn't make Schaefer a presuppositionalist. He certainly talked a lot about uh, presuppositions. But when he was asked directly, are you a presuppositionalist? He said, no, I'm not. I'm an evangelist. Let me read you a typical quote from Van Til. And everything he says is absolutely correct. The non-Christian scientist must be told that he's dealing with facts that belong to God. He must be told that his own mind with its principles of order depends upon his being made in the image of God. That's absolutely true. You could tell a non-Christian scientist that everything is wrong with his beliefs and he is in fact working on God's territory. But the problem is to insist that's the only way of doing evangelism, the only way of doing apologetics, is, I believe, quite wrong. In fact, I think it's positively damaging. People have accused uh, Van Til of being a fideist, in terms of his method. The implication is that uh, for evangelism to take place, an unbeliever must completely abandon their worldview and embrace the Christian worldview. And this is a very tall order. In fact, it's impossible. It seems to me, the more I, I have studied this, it seems to be the philosophical equivalent of hyper-Calvinism. Now, if you don't know what hyper-Calvinism is, let me tell you about it. Hyper-Calvinists are not Calvinists only. They usually are Calvinists, but they, they would go a lot further. They believe that you shouldn't preach the gospel and invite everyone to respond to the gospel because God may not have elected everyone to respond. And as Spurgeon pointed out, himself a Calvinist, this means the gospel is no longer for sinners. Only regenerate people should attend evangelistic services. Spurgeon, who certainly believed in the biblical doctrine of election, was a convinced Calvinist, but he rightly argued that the gospel must be preached to all. Now, Van Til certainly believed that Christians should argue with non-Christians. He believed that very strongly and that they should be tried, uh, we should try and convince them. The only trouble is that under his method, you have to convince them of everything. Only then would the world make sense. And the fallacy behind this approach is to assume that because the fallen mind is incapable of knowing everything, it cannot know anything. But by God's grace, the fallen human mind is capable of rational thought. Now, sometimes Van Til admits this. He says that non-Christians are inconsistent. They sometimes act, in fact, they often act, as though the Christian faith is true. 
We know this is the case. We see this every day. Non-Christians are inconsistent. Human life throughout the world relies on the fact that many Christian beliefs are true. The scientist relies on the fact that the universe is ordered and rational. No true atheist could accept this. Let me quote Leslie Newbegin. A scientist faced with an apparent irrationality does not accept it as final. He goes on struggling to find some rational way in which the facts can be related to each other. Without that passionate faith in the ultimate rationality of the world, science would falter, stagnate and die. Give you another example. Take the issue of suffering. If God does not exist, why shouldn't there be suffering in the world? If there is no God, what right do we have to expect the world to be anything other than cruel and random? It's only when you believe in God, and only when you believe that God exists, that you wonder why God should allow suffering. So you have that, that the non-Christian thinks like a Christian very often. Van Til's approach is philosophically very aggressive. He's like a man who crosses the street for a fight. And there's much that is good with Van Til, and certainly the argument about saying, well, uh, as Schaeffer said, that if God didn't exist, what would the world be like? is a perfectly acceptable way of arguing. Schaeffer proved that arguing that God must exist is a perfectly way, a perfectly acceptable way of doing apologetics. It's not the only way. Uh, Schaeffer's way of arguing that there is a creator and that since there is a creator, the world is made in this way is what's sometimes called the ontological argument. But Van Til implies that only one method is right and that all other methods verge on blasphemy. That's not the only way of doing evangelism. Van Til's writing is highly complex and abstruse. It fails to recognize that though man's mind is fallen, by God's grace he can still think. And let me quote John Calvin on this, who I think is very sensible. When we do so condemn human understanding for its perpetual blindness as to leave it no perception of any object whatsoever, we do not know only against, go against God's word, but also run counter to the experience of common sense. For we see implanted in human nature some sort of desire to search out the truth to which man would not at all aspire if he had not already savoured it. Human understanding then possesses some power of perception since it is by nature captivated by love of truth. So Calvin says we shouldn't, if we go on about human understanding and say it can't perceive anything whatsoever, then we go against God's word and we run again run against uh, common sense and what we see. So that's the second extreme, that of uh, really assuming that man is incapable of any rational thought whatsoever. The third extreme uh, is the opposite end of the spectrum. If Cornelius Van Til uh, is overly pessimistic about the human mind, then many have accused Thomas Aquinas of going to the, the other way. It's often said that Aquinas argued that you, cannot reason, you can reason someone to God. It's often said that Aquinas taught the mind was not affected by the fall. And I've no doubt that certainly a, a followers of Aquinas believe this. 
And as Leslie Newbigin has pointed out, Roman Catholic belief effectively denies uh, the effect of sin on the mind. But in the past 20 years, some people have actually been reading uh, Aquinas uh, and his original work, which is very voluminous, and they've been saying, well, hang on a minute, if you look at what Aquinas wrote, he does not appear to be saying what some people say he said. And uh, people are saying that we should re-look at him. And some of the people are are actually uh, conservative evangelicals. Let me quote one, Norman Geisler. He said that Thomas Aquinas held that faith rests solely on the testimony and authority of God. Evidence may be used to support, confirm, or even accompany belief, but it must never be the basis for believing. That's what Norman Geisler uh, says Aquinas believed. And let me quote Aquinas to you. You can see that Geisler is right. Aquinas said, It seems that a man cannot know any truth without grace. Now, however pure it be, bodily sense cannot see any visible thing without the light of the sun. Hence, however perfect be the human mind, it cannot by reasoning know any truth without the light of God, which belongs to the aid of grace. And it's very interesting that uh, Edgar Powell, who's again from the Reformed tradition, uh, in a recent book has made the same point about Aquinas. Uh, Can I recommend his excellent book, On God's Shoulders, a brilliant introduction to apologetics. There are also many other really very good books in the same series by day one. And they're all on our bookstall and there's 20% off tonight, I think. So that's really the part one of what I wanted to say. The fall does affect our ability to think rationally. We have a moral problem. It's a refusal to believe. But on the other hand, the fallen mind is capable of thinking rationally. So I want now to look at what the Bible says about the right use of the mind in apologetics. Man, though fallen, uh, still has the image of God. It's not entirely defaced. There is sufficient rationality left for there to be a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. Let me quote Jim Packer. He says, Persuasion is needed. God treats us as the rational beings that he made us accordingly. He does not move us to Christian responses by physical means that bypass the mind, but by persuading us to obey his truth and honor his son. God supernaturally inspired the writing of the Bible. The Bible writers were not machines. They were individuals with different personalities and maybe different styles of writing. God has so ordered their writing so that it's without error. Now, the very fact that God communicates to us through a book is a reminder that God is a rational God. As I said earlier, he doesn't use lightning. He uses rationality and he uses the Bible, uh, his word. So what does the Bible say about apologetic methods? I'd like to consider five things. First of all, preaching. Second, uh, arguments from creation. Then the conscience. Then evidences. And finally, the use of secular sources. Firstly then, preaching. It's not enough, actually, to have the Bible. According to the uh, the New Testament, there must be preachers. Romans 10.14. How can they hear without a preacher? Now, there's a special place for preaching God's word 
in a church service. But there are many opportunities for every Christian to declare God's word. As Jim Packer says, the preacher as God's, the preacher as God's mouthpiece has the task of persuading on God's behalf. And the role is a vital one. Since where there is no persuasion, people will perish. Preaching is the art not of browbeating, but of persuading in a way that shows both respect for the human mind and reverence for the God who made it. Now, not all the arguments that we have, we will deploy at any one time. It's our task to draw people to the gospel. There may be arguments that are better uh, useful, uh, better to be used in a particular situation than others. And we will, we don't have to deploy our whole argument uh, battery, if you like, in one go. And the preaching of truth is so powerful that it can even be used by God when done with false motives. Evidently, whilst Paul was under house arrest, there were people preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. They preached to create trouble for Paul. But Paul says that the important thing was that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And he said, because of this, I rejoice. In Philippians 1 verse 18. Now truth is so powerful that even when uh, preached out of false motives, it can still convince unbelievers. So preaching, first of all. Next, creation. We're very familiar with uh, the idea that uh, people are uh, converted through preaching, people are persuaded through preaching. But what about creation? The Bible clearly teaches that man still has an awareness of God through creation. Our reading tonight was from Psalm 19. It opened in the first three verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Paul argues the same thing in Romans 1, verses 18 and 20. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Everyone knows that God exists. The problem is that men suppress the truth. And it's clear from Romans 1 that there can be a progressive hardening of the heart. God leaves people to the consequences of their sin. He gives them over, to use Paul's phrase. All men, though, are without excuse. The knowledge of God in creation is sufficient to condemn, but it's not sufficient to save. Paul, when he was preaching to the Jews, didn't actually appeal to creation because they accepted that. But in Acts, when Paul preached to people who didn't believe in one God, people who are idolaters, Paul did use arguments from creation. So in Acts 13, Paul preached to the Jews and he didn't use arguments from creation. He just used the Bible. He used the Old Testament. But in Acts 14, Paul told his hearers in Lystra that God had not left himself without testimony. He said, he has shown you kindness, 
by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Acts 14, 17. Again, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, he also refers to God the Creator, who gives all men life to breathe and everything else. God is the ultimate provider of everything, even loaves of bread. Though ultimately man, uh, of course man makes loaves of bread, but ultimately God provides even loaves of bread. And the Bible talks about the sheer wonder of God's creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, verse 14. God himself, in his conversations with Job, if that's what they can be called, in, in, in the way that God talks to Job in chapters 38 to 41 in Job, he talks of the variety and wonder of creation. The Bible often uses creation as an argument for God's eternal power, and so should we. And there are two main arguments that we can use. The first is that we can argue uh, that uh, every effect must have a cause. Look at the wonderful things that are being made in the world. It must have a cause. It must have a creator. And that's the sort of argument that Thomas Aquinas used. And he, he really developed that. God is the first cause of everything. There is, uh, as it's called, the cosmological argument. The second type of argument we can use from creation is an argument from design. This is sometimes called the teleological argument. There is a remarkable pattern in nature. Mainstream scientists are talking now of an intelligent designer. And one reason for this is the theory of entropy, uh, which most scientists accept. It appears to completely collide with the order and pattern that we see in nature. The theory of en entropy says that energy must dissipate. Put another way, uh, things left of themselves go from order to chaos. Things tend to disorder. But the remarkable thing is that there is so much order in the universe. Yet, the universe is supposed to have started from chaos, from a big bang. So how come? And there is a huge problem. Uh, so many scientists now are talking about an intelligent designer. And Francis Schaeffer did much to attack the modern belief that man never had a creator. And also, I think, Leslie Newbegin argued that evolution was ridiculously improbable. As new scientific evidence has come along, there's been a remarkable revival of arguments from design. And uh, the, it's very interesting, the new books that have come out from uh, day one about this. There are many irreducible mechanisms in nature. Everything needs to be in place at one time in order for certain mechanisms to work. If a certain bone structure in an animal, if that's required for flight uh, in a bird, then you cannot have a non-flying creature evolve to become a flying creature because you need a minimum sort of structure which is of a completely different nature to an animal that doesn't fly. And I commend the, the books that Day One have, have produced about this. Uh, they seem to be very, very helpful on this point. So those are arguments from creation. You can argue that things must have a cause, and you can point people to the wonder of design, and there must be an intelligent designer. So arguments from creation. I want to talk now about something which is not often talked about in the whole field of apologetics, and that's the conscience. 
Man, though fallen, still has a conscience which can be appealed to. Man is the only creature with a conscience, and that's because we're made in the image of God. And the fact of a conscience should be extremely puzzling to an atheist. In Romans 2, 14-15, Paul says that Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. Their, their conscience condemns them when they do wrong, and it also praises them when they do right. Paul says also in Galatians 3 that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And clearly he's referring to the way in which the Old Testament law under Moses brought the Jews to Christ. But there's a wider application. <coughs> Consciousness of sin through God's law working in our conscience can drive us to acknowledge the need of a saviour. As I mentioned earlier, faith and repentance always come together. And with so little consciousness of sin today, it's vital that Christian morality is also defended in apologetics. And that's exactly what Francis Schaeffer did. And I don't think we've, been, we've seen many people like him since. One person who was, uh, was Raymond Johnson in this country. Francis Schaeffer vigorously defended the Christian belief on abortion, euthanasia and infanticide. He was way ahead of his time. People perhaps didn't believe him, but aren't we now seeing this? Every week there's a new court case going on about a right to euthanasia, a right to abortion, and even cases now involving the killing of newborn babies. Schaefer was way ahead of his time, and we need such people today to defend Christian belief. So too was Raymond Johnson, a quite remarkable reading of what he wrote some 30 years ago, and we're going to hear about that next week. Schaefer and Johnson were apologists for Christian moral teaching. Uh, it's interesting that R.C. Sproul has highlighted the role of apologetics in this in a recent book. He says, often apologetics is deemed fruitless or valueless because it is restricted to evangelism. Though it does relate to evangelism, thereby to the sphere of special grace, as we have seen, its application goes beyond that to the arena of common grace. Apologetics act as a bulwark against unbridled, anti-theistic ideologies and their cultural impact. Man's general welfare is enhanced by our cultural consensus in which Christianity and its values are deemed credible. One of the reasons why the church has lost so much ground, I believe, is because we're not standing up on these moral issues. We're being marginalized and marginalized uh, and some Christians, uh, sadly today, are quite happy to go back to a sort of fideist belief that the only thing they really need to defend is the fact that Christianity is about faith. It's not about reason. And uh, we're seeing uh, the church uh, retreating on so many areas, and I think we need to stand firm on that. So the conscience also is a way in which the Bible says we should argue with people who are unbelievers to try and convince them of the truth. One consequence of that is that men know that they're in the wrong and they know that they need a saviour through their conscience. The fourth area I want to talk about is the whole area of evidences. This is, in fact, the most familiar area of apologetics to most people. The Gospel accounts are historical records of Jesus' teaching and miracles. That's what they claim to be. Luke says he carefully investigated everything in his orderly account. In the first chapter, John says that Jesus performed many more miracles than he could possibly record in John 20. The miracles 
authenticate Jesus' claims and authority. Peter says that Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs in Acts 2.22. Jesus said himself in John 14, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus was telling his followers to take him at his word. But if that was difficult, then believe because of the miracles. In other words, miracles strengthen your faith. They strengthened the faith of his disciples. And of course, the resurrection is the greatest miracle. When Peter preached, he referred to the events that were contemporary. He knew uh, that the resurrection had taken place and so did his hearers. Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. The New Testament, New Testament, no way about it, makes an historical claim. Paul tells us that he appeared to Peter, then to 12 apostles, and then to more than 500 people at one time. That was after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and 6. When the gospel was preached, the resurrection was proclaimed. Everyone knew that all the Jews had to do to refute the claims was to produce the body, but they never did, and they could not do it. They also knew that the tomb was heavily guarded by Roman soldiers. The resurrection transformed 11 fearful and dejected men who saw their Messiah die into men who went out and turned the world upside down. All except John died for their belief. And they would not have done this uh, if they secretly knew that the factual claims at the centre of their faith were false. They clearly believed in what they were preaching. Now some people, of course, have died for a lie. Uh, But the question is, what was it that turned around these 11 fearful, dejected men and caused them to be people who were full of faith and courage and who died for what they believe? Paul himself was a persecutor of uh, the early Christians. What made him turn around and become uh, a Christian and experience the same sort of persecution which he had meted out on others? What made him willing to die for his faith? Only an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now the New Testament doesn't just assert that the resurrection was true, it asserts the truth of many, many other historical events. For example, the virginal conception, uh, the massacre of uh, all the male uh, children under the age of two by Herod. And there are also uh, historical claims in the Old Testament as well. There are detailed historical accounts which, as time goes on, are accepted uh, as increasingly authoritative even by non-Christian archaeologists. The writing of the Old Testament was finished 400 years before Christ. Yet, within the Old Testament, there are dozens of prophecies about the Messiah. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 verse 14. Of the house of David, Isaiah 11 verse 1. In the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5 verse 2. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41 verse 9. And sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 verse 12. But the money would be returned to the temple and used to buy a potter's field, 
Zechariah, Zechariah 11.13. He will be used, accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35, verse 11, but not answer them, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He will be mocked and spat upon, Isaiah 50, verse 6. His garments will be divided by lot, Psalm 22, verse 18. He will be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Pierced and bruised, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But no bones will be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. He will be deserted by his followers, Psalm 35, verse 11. And buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. These are just some of the prophecies. There are many, many more. And it's been calculated that the probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man is one in a hundred million billion, or one in ten to the seventeen. That's a very, very big number indeed. One in a hundred million billion. That's just eight of the prophecies. So there's some remarkable prophecies in the Old Testament, and we can use that as we talk to people who are not Christian, use that as evidences for the Christian faith. I believe that's the way they are intended to be used. Why else would prophecies be given um, and available to us? Of course, they were uh, there to make clear that Christ was the Messiah and the, the way in which the Messiah was to come and to attest to that. But they're still available to us. Finally, I want to just talk about the use of secular sources. Um, This is another area which um, perhaps you don't hear so much about uh, in the whole area of apologetics. At the time of Jesus, there were many uh, catchphrases and popular sayings that went around. And it's interesting that Jesus himself picked up on them. Sometimes he uh, approved of them and he quoted them and used them in his uh, teaching. Other times he said they were wrong and he sought to put matters right. One of the phrases that he picked up on is the phrase uh, put about by the religious teachers. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus picked up on that distortion of the Bible and he put matters right. Now, in in a similar way, uh, the New Testament writers were quite happy to quote from secular sources to make a point. Now, in Acts 17, Paul uh, was in Athens, and he quoted from two 6th-century poets with uh, unpronounceable names. Uh, first was uh, Epidemenes, I think from Nosos in Crete, uh, from the 6th century BC, and the other one was Aratus from the 3rd century BC. And he quoted these in his preaching just to make a point. And again... Uh, Paul, in another, uh, on another occasion, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, quotes from a poet called Menander, and also our friend uh, that we've just heard about, Epidemes, again, in Titus 1, verse 12. There are many other examples in the Old and the New Testaments where non-biblical sources are used. For instance, in the accounts uh, that are contained in the book of Samuel, we learn about the Lament of Bo, written in the book of Jashar. That's another book. It's got nothing to do with the Bible, but it's another book. And frequently in Kings and Chronicles, there are quotations from books outside the Bible. We learn about um, uh, characters even in the New Testament that are not in the Old Testament. 
Uh, we know that they're true because the New Testament writers quote them. Now, the fact that these secular works are quoted doesn't mean, of course, that these secular works are inerrant. Merely that when they are actually quoted and they become part of the Bible in that context, they are inerrant. But the, the Bible writers use them just to make a point, just in the way of uh, teaching people who are not believers. Certainly in the case of Paul, he used that. He, quote, he quoted secular poets to make a point. So there we have it, five ways, five methods um, which we can use uh, that are endorsed by the Bible. Preaching, arguments from creation, the conscience, evidences, and the use even of secular sources. Now, there are many arguments, uh, as I've often said, which can be used to defend the Christian faith. Uh, the, apologi uh, the apologists that we're going to hear in our autumn lecture series tend not to restrict themselves to any one particular method. They use all of them. Apologetics is, of course, very important in evangelism. But it's also important to Christians in strengthening their own faith. I would say that... As a Christian myself, it's one of the things that, that certainly helped me in the first few years of being a Christian was reading about apologetics. And I believe that Christians should do this. Uh, it does actually strengthen your faith, and I, th I think that's very important. But Francis Schaeffer and Raymond Johnson also uh, have proved the importance of apologetics on moral issues. And I would argue that much of what the Christian Institute does today uh, is to give apologetics on moral issues. C.S. Lewis is one person I've not mentioned tonight. He's a truly remarkable figure who's been powerfully used by God. And it's interesting that uh, not only in the English language do we have C.S. Lewis, we have many, many other apologists for the Christian faith. Most defences of the Christian faith, in fact, are written in the English language. And we should be very grateful to God that we have such teaching available to us. Available easily to us and available in a country where we have a tremendous measure of religious freedom. To whom much is given, much is expected. And I hope that we can defend our freedom um, but also let us defend uh, the Christian faith. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Colin. Uh, we're going to have a time of questions a moment. You know the format. The inner and outer doors have now been locked and the heat has turned up. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a time of questions a moment. But for one minute only, let's just have a little pause. Don't dance about, but just, just a pause and then we'll take some questions. You may, maybe questions are formulating in your minds. You're happy to answer them, aren't you? Good. Counting down, aren't they? Let's take uh, questions. Uh, I'm, I, I know that the tapes of the Christian Institute have always been of high quality, both in terms of the lecture itself and the questions. But you will have bought tapes from other places where there's a fine talk, uh, and then there are questions being answered which you can't hear. Uh, and I'm going to avoid that entirely tonight because we have a new format for question time. And Humphrey Dobson here, who was on the staff of the Christian Institute, is, has a, 
a microphone which is not to be touched or grasped or clasped, but simply spoken into. And you'll get a bit of a shock because as you speak into it, it won't magnify your voice. So don't worry about that. Just speak as you would normally speak and it will be recorded beautifully on the tape. Is that right, Peter, isn't it? We'll try. So, um, and while you're formulating questions, just, just pray for those people who have to talk about Leslie Newbegin and Francis Schaeffer, particularly, because uh, we've heard a lot about them already tonight. Um, is anyone brave enough uh, to ask the first question? If you are, please raise your hand, and Humphrey will come and put the microphone in front of you, and just don't touch it. Uh, you may get a shock. Just speak into it in your normal speaking voice. Can we take that to Chris at the back there? Colin, I'd be interested in your thoughts at a time when Islam is on everyone's minds. What role there is in, if I could describe it as negative apologetics, for example, the weakness of Muhammad's historical account of Jesus' life compared with the historical accuracy of the Gospels? Do you think that has a role as well? Thank you. I'm sure it does. Um, I know it's not politically very politically correct, isn't it, to talk about that, and even to talk about the transmission of the way in which the Quran uh, came. Uh, was written down on the back of bones, I think, while uh, Muhammad was in an epileptic fit, I think. Um, no, I think there is a role of that to talk, but of course, I think it must be done respectfully. Um, Jesus is a prophet, uh, and Islam, and many of the approaches to witnessing to Muslims do involve using books that the Muslims regard as holy and trying to argue from that point of view. I think Muslims look at our country. I, I remember when I was a student going around doing door-to-door evangelism, meeting a Muslim who thought nothing of Christianity because he looked at the West, and he, they, they think that the West represents Christianity, and they think we're very decadent, which we are. And um, they, they can't see that. Uh, they can't see the difference. And um, I think there is a role in actually trying to separate the West from actually what Christianity is, and I don't think they actually understand that. I think there is also a lot of um, misconceptions about the nature of the Trinity uh, and, and the nature of Christian belief. Uh, but in one sense, uh, I... Some of the time uh, when we are campaigning, we have actually campaigned with Muslims. Uh, we, uh, um, on identical issues, uh, where we both feel the same way, we have actually campaigned on things like Section 28. And we do that. And I think, as a Christian, I'm glad that the Muslims see that Christians are concerned too about these issues. Uh, and I think that that is a credit to the gospel when, when they realize that, that that is in fact the case. But it does so... Uh, worry me that, of course, Muslims look at the West and they think, if that's Christianity, I, I don't like it, it's decadent. And the West is so liberal and so weak uh, and so uh, decadent that, uh, you know, you worry about the, the actually Islam spreading, uh, which, of course, it has done. Um, uh, Spain itself was a country that was under the rule of Muslims well uh, beyond, I think, 1,000 um, AD. And uh, so uh, you, you just wonder about, are we so weak and spineless and decadent in the, in the West that this is what will actually happen? Um, but I think that in witness to Muslims, we, 
we should actually try and portray what Christianity really is, uh, as well as talking about the evidence for the resurrection, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, not Thomas dying. Jesus didn't revive in the tomb uh, and so forth. Yes, I think we should do those things. No one else like to ask you a question. Um, please don't hesitate. Or form, form back in. There must be questions. Well, there mustn't be questions, but the invitation is there. There's a gentleman at the back, come through the back row. In a, in a previous lecture a year or two ago, I think you mentioned the same point about the conscience, uh, and this initially confused me, but finally you clarified, you know, we're thinking of people like Paul Pot, Hitler, Bin Laden. Uh, the conscience, of course, is corruptible and, and is, has been affected by the fall, and in a lot of people it is severely blunted. Wouldn't you agree? More, more a point of clarification. A uh, point of clarification rather than a question. The conscience. I think the problem is that Paul said, as Paul said, that men can become hardened. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Not everyone is a Hitler. But I think culturally, uh, we can go in the same way that the Roman Empire went. That there, there is uh, a certain uh, tolerance of all sorts of evil, and it goes from one thing to another. Things go from bad to worse. And uh, Paul gives a huge long list of things, and right at the top are sexual sins. In fact, heterosexual sins, first of all, and then then many others as well. And uh, I think there is a role in actually appealing to people's conscience. And if people do what is wrong, then their conscience will condemn them, and they will know that they need a saviour. I think it's very wrong to preach the gospel without showing people why they actually need a saviour. And I think the ordinary person today has no consciousness of sin at all. And they don't see the church raising uh, any issues, really, uh, in public life about right and wrong and what is, what is sinful. And so our salt uh, has lost its saltiness. So I think we should be provoking uh, people's conscience. Uh, that has a good effect. Not only does it have the effect of... Um, making people think that they actually need a saviour, it also has the effect of restraining evil in society. People are restrained, as Calvin talked about, being restrained by public opinion. If enough people say that something is wrong, it has an effect. Uh, it's a restraining effect. And it's because we haven't seen this uh, that there, there's so often a problem. But when there is, uh, you do see it. We've, we've had cases in Scotland where a local authority has banned certain materials for use in schools, in sex education, because it's said, because of public opinion, because this issue has become a hot potato. And I think that's what we should be doing as Christians, and I think that's what Francis Schaeffer did um, on the, in the whole area of abortion and pro-life issues, and I think we need that again today. Thank you. The gentleman here, Humphrey, on the second row. This way. If I could come back on your previous reference to Islam, 
there are three things that make a society what it is. Climate, resources, and belief. Now, I'm not prepared to sell this country down the line by referring to it as if it was decadent, more than any other country. I mean, why do people come here? This country is a product of Christian values. We haven't a perfect history. We haven't a perfect social arrangement. But we can be proud of the influence of Christian people who have used their democratic right to improve human life. This is why people come here. It's an indictment upon their own countries that they come here. And I think we need to defend that. And I find myself in this particular context uh, acting as an evangelical, apologetic person for the Christian faith in terms of what exists politically and socially in this country of which I'm proud. Well, I very strongly agree with what you're saying. Um, I, I'm just commenting on the fact that really uh, we're... Uh, our Christian cultural capital is being used up. I mean, some of us, I see it as my job to defend our Christian cultural capital in this country, and all that is good in this country comes from our Christian past, and we've got much to be very, very grateful to God for. I mean, we have been the number one missionary-sending country in the world. We have had the Bible in the common tongue longer than uh, virtually any other nation on earth, I think, apart from uh, Israel itself. And um, we have much to be very thankful to God for, but we are really turning our back on that. But that's not to say that isn't important in our past. It still has a tremendous influence on our nation. Many of our laws are still based on Christ Christian principles, even the law of marriage, for instance. We had a debate last week about gay partnerships. The law of marriage in this country is directly derived from the New Testament. Uh, it was even quoted uh, in the courtroom uh, in, when the law uh, was uh, actually uh, when, the, when there was actually a precedent set in the 1800s. And there are many cases like that where our law is actually dependent on Christian principles. But that's being used up, and uh, we, I think, we're doing that as our, at our peril. And I think we should seek to defend our uh, Christian traditions and fight for it. Um, it's almost like uh, uh, an analogy with what was going on in the Second World War. I was thinking uh, just this weekend the story of um, a lady who ran a post office uh, in some part of the country, and her post office was used as the main centre for the resistance. Hit, uh, if Hitler invaded, Churchill set up uh, a resistance network which for 10 days was going to resist, uh, and by acts of sabotage, what the Germans were doing in this country. And there were ordinary people who were not called up for war service who were trained to fight the Germans when they invaded this country. And, uh, you know, some of us are going to be like those. We're, we've been invaded now, if you like, and uh, let's have that same sort of spirit uh, in fighting for what we believe to be right, because we are right. It's not us that, are, that is right. It's because we believe what the Bible is true uh, is right. We must defend that. And in fact, our nation will not cohere as a nation, will not survive. Um, so I'm, I'm very strongly with you in, in wanting to defend very strongly um, all that is good in our past.
But at the same time, sadly, um, we are turning our back uh, on much that is good in our past. Any other questions anyone wants to put? Uh, just behind the... Just if... Just... You mentioned the the final, fine order in the universe, and <clears throat> I know that the uh, the fine tuning can be shown uh, mathematically to be a wonderful evidence that it couldn't have happened by mindless chance. But I think it's find it more difficult to argue in the case of miracles, which seem to go against nature but I don't know, that may be too big a subject to deal with now. I'm sure it's a big subject. Is it too big for you to answer? Miracles? Well, I, God normally acts rationally uh, in the sense of predictably, um, but God always acts rationally in the sense that always within his rules, and occasionally they uh, require the uh, uh, acting out of sequence in the sense of, uh, of prediction. And we have stories in the Bible of time going backwards, uh, going, uh, the shadows going up the steps instead of down. We have the story of the, the resurrection and the virginal conception. And, but I actually find nowadays, I don't think, the problem is people don't have such a problem now with, with miracles. Um, the problem they have is that they can hold in their minds all sorts of strange ideas that are completely contradictory one with another, um, that involve uh, sort of new, idea, new age ideas or mirac- belief in the paranormal, supernatural. How many people read their um, stars in the newspapers? People do have uh, this belief now in the supernatural. We're n- we don't live in a cold, rational age. Things have changed, I think. And um, so perhaps people don't feel so challenged by the whole concept of miracles that they used to. Um, we have the problem of whenever you appeal to uniqueness, if you say Jesus is the only way, then you have a very big problem and you get a very strong reaction. Um, but perhaps not so much now with miracles because people believe in all sorts of strange ideas. Um, if we lived in a cold, rational age, uh, perhaps the 1800s were a very rational age in many ways with the advance of science, then, of course, that would be the territory, I think, on which we will be fighting. But nowadays, there's a complete abandonment of rationality. And I don't think we should abandon our rationality. We should still argue it, um, uh, even though other people may be turning against it. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Any other questions anyone would like to ask? Gentleman here. Terrorism seems to be the negation of law and order. And I wonder with the influence of European uh, legal influences at the present time, whether that is an additional threat which the apologist in this day needs to be uh, equipped in. I know very little about European law, but it goes through my mind that in Europe we had the days of the Holy Roman Empire and the... The, the great influence of the Roman Catholic Church, of course, and not everywhere was subject to the Reformation. So I do wonder 
whether we need to be equipped uh, for the European influences that may in fact be opposed to law and order as we understand it. What good questions. As well, I've not been asked them, I think. I'd give very simple answers. Colin will give much more profound ones. Oops. Yeah. Do you want to torn up my talk, I think? Um, That's not a comment. It's not a comment. <laughs> I think what's very important is we understand the basis of law as changing, uh, whether it's the human rights sector, whether it's European law. Our old common law used to be that if a law doesn't say it's wrong, you can do it. You can do anything as long as the law says it isn't right. Um, whereas with human rights law, you actually write things down. You may do this, you may do the other thing, this is your right. And there's a very different, a very um, mammoth shift there, really. Christian um, uh, principles are being used to underpin the law. There's a huge argument that has gone on in the last 50 years amongst lawyers, whether uh, the law is based on natural law, which is stable, which is always the same, which exists for all men in all cultures. It's a given. Uh, people have a conscience. People like Lord Denning defended the law, uh, the natural law. He said that our law was based on a higher law. All the judge was there to do was inter to interpret the national laws in accordance with the higher law, with natural law. But with something called positive law, you make law... As you go along, you just say what, it, what law is actually to be. Man makes law. And therefore, the predictability, the order, uh, is gone. And people just don't know what a judge will decide. One day a judge will say, well, two hot Protestants preaching outside a cathedral, uh, blood-curdling statements against Catholics... Uh, are perfectly lawful, in fact, should be defended by the Human Rights Act. The next day, the uh, judge says, well, of course, uh, Mrs. P should die and have her machines turned off because she, she has a human right. And so the predictability in the law is gone. And that's because we've broken with our Christian understanding of law being based on a higher law. And I think that's the problem. It's not particularly that it's... Uh, uh, of course, in Europe, um, some nations went more with Lutheran teaching on the role of the state. Some went more with Calvin, like us. Um, but uh, we, our law, our common law, is based on natural law, based on the belief that everyone knows what basically is right, and the law is there just to flesh out the details. And we've lost that now, and so the certainty has gone in the law. And that's why lawyers are doing a very good business at the moment. And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of uh, terrible stories in America about the number of lawyers per square foot. Uh, it really is going up in this country. And uh, you just don't know so often. Um, you can't predict what the outcome of a particular case will be. And I think that's a very bad thing. That's an indictment on our culture, I think, in a way. <laughs>